Please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. I'll read the first six verses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? The spirit which he has made to dwell in us yearns jealously over us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the first four verses of this chapter, James speaks of the grievous sin that remains even in believers. A strong lust, desire for the things of the world, the friendship of the world that produced bitter jealousies, selfish ambitions among one another, quarrels, conflicts, and strife between them. The situation was so grievous that James calls them in verse 4 adulteresses because their love of the world was an idolatry, a spiritual adultery in the turning of their hearts away from God. James warns them that to continue on this path would make them the enemies of God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In the passage here, it shows us how strong, how powerful remaining sin can be even in the hearts of believing Christians. We might rank this passage here among Romans chapter 7, the last half of Romans chapter 7. The Lord does not hide from us the evil that still remains in us and what it can do. The Bible is always a book of realism that shows us who we really are. And God does this to show us and to bring us to the great cure for our problem of sin. And that's what James is doing here in verses 5 and following. After describing the desperate power of their remaining sin and what it has done among them, now he directs us to the only cure for that terrible disease which is found in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit We notice a great change as we move from verse 4 to verse 5 and following. It is a change that is often found in the Bible. Because in verses 1 through 4, James is speaking of us. He is speaking of what is in us and what sin does in us. But now in verse 5, he points us above to Christ and the Holy Spirit and the only cure for our sin. 
a very stark and dramatic change of thought from us on earth. He points us now to heaven and our only hope in Christ. If all we had was verses 1 through 4, and all we had is what what James says comes from ourselves, then we would despair. But there is hope, he says, but the hope is not found in us and what we can do. The hope is found only in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we learn a most important lesson here, which is that Christianity is not a man-made religion. Christianity is not a moral code that men keep in their own strength. It is a heaven-born religion. It comes down from above to us as helpless sinners by God's grace. We have commandments that we are to follow, yes, but we never do them in our own strength and by our own resolve. The Bible always shows us how deep our depravity is, but then the Bible always directs us to the only cure in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So James exposes sin in verses 1 through 4. And after he does so, he does not give us a list of do's and don'ts, how we can change and reform ourselves from our own strength. He immediately directs us to the scripture as our means of sanctification. That's what he says in the beginning of verse 5. He says, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And then he points us to the Holy Spirit and we've adopted that different translation than what we read here in the NAS, more similar to the New King James, where James says there at the end of verse 5, the spirit which he has made to dwell in us yearns jealously over us. We've spent several sermons looking at these two great works of the Holy Spirit here. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in every believer from conversion And also, the Holy Spirit yearns jealously over us for our sanctification and our purity. This morning we come to verse 6, and we'll divide our sermon into two main points. First, God's abundant provision to heal us of our sin. And second, the condition of God's abundant provision. So in the first place, we have God's abundant provision to heal us of our sin, which is found in the beginning of verse 6. He says, but he gives a greater grace. Grace is the inward strength and the power and the help of the Holy Spirit that God gives to equip us here and to supply our needs that we might be sanctified and live according to his word and be pleasing to him. The word grace is used in different ways in the New Testament. There is what is called first the effectual grace of conversion, which comes to us in the very beginning of the Christian life. When the Holy Spirit comes to give us new life, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. The Holy Spirit comes and gives the new birth, gives us new spiritual life, 
The Holy Spirit comes and illuminates our minds and he gives to us the gifts of repentance and faith so that we come to Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, he says, by grace you have been saved. And so everything that takes place in the beginning of the Christian life is what we can call this effectual grace of conversion. Always effectual, always powerful enough, sufficient to bring us to faith in Christ. But then after conversion, our need of grace does not cease. And now we are in continual need of God's grace to work in us in the progress of sanctification from the beginning to the end of the Christian life. So now we have what is called this indwelling grace, which is the continuing grace of God in us by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this indwelling, continuing grace is what James is speaking of here In verse 6, the Holy Spirit who indwells us in verse 5 is the one who now continues to work this grace in us in verse 6. The Holy Spirit gave us the initial grace in conversion. Now he dwells in us permanently for this continuing grace in our sanctification. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, but he, God, gives a greater grace. That little word but in the beginning of verse 6, some translate it moreover or in addition to, if we take it to mean to be but, if we take it as the word but as it is in our Translation here, then it indicates a contrast. And the contrast is with the love of the world and the sins mentioned in the previous verses. And so James' idea here now is that no matter how great the temptations of the world may be, and no matter how fierce the battle with remaining sin may be in us, there is always greater grace that comes to us from God with greater strength and power to overcome our sins. God calls us to holiness. And he calls us to keep his commandments. He says, be holy as I am holy. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And when we consider holiness and God's commandments as being holy and righteous and good in all of their ways and And then we see ourselves as we still are in this world of so many temptations and sins around and within. We ask, how can we ever be what we should be and make progress in the Christian life? And the answer is given here. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who has come to dwell in us, who yearns so intensely, jealously over our sanctification. The Holy Spirit has power to give us grace to overcome all our sins. He has the power to conquer temptations. 
And he has the power to give us ever-increasing supplies of grace according to all of our needs in the Christian life. James has spoken in these previous verses about some very sad and shameful sins. If we look back to chapter 3 and verse 14 for a moment, he says in chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. He speaks there of jealousy. The word can be translated envy. It's one of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5 and verse 20. He puts the word bitter, the adjective bitter in front of it. Which means that this is not just jealousy or envy. This is unresolved anger. Resentfulness against another. So the idea here is that one person desires what another has and cannot obtain it, and so he becomes bitter, angry, and resentful against the other, and we are speaking here of Christians in the church. But then that's not enough. He says selfish ambition, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is an ambition, a desire that one has for what one wants. And the lust to have it no matter what it does to anyone else. And so when you put these two things together, this bitter and this bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, then you have this most volt, volatile mix and no wonder James speaks of these quarrels and conflicts among them. But James tells us where these sins come from. We see there in verse 14 He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. That's where it comes from. That's the source and the origin of the power of this sin. It comes from the heart. Out of the heart, Jesus said, come all these various sins. Out of the heart. The very personality down in the depths of the soul. If we look over to chapter 4 and the end of verse 1. He says, there is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members, in the members of your body. So what we have here is we have sin that is in the heart and it also resides in the members of our body as if a poison is in the heart. And from the heart, the poison of this sin gets pumped out through all the members of the body so that the whole person is consumed in the power of this sin. A very terrible description is James giving us here. We have been infected in every part. These sins that he speaks of here, this bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, these lusts for things, It's shameful. We all know what they are. And we've all known them in our own hearts and in the members of our own bodies. No one can be happy with these things while we live under them. 
They give us no real joy, peace, or happiness. No one can be truly happy while these things reside and have control over him. The question is, who can ever go down into the depths of the heart and down through the members of the body to heal us of this terrible disease? The only answer is what James gives us here in verses 5 and following the spirit which dwells in us, the spirit which so earnestly, jealously works in us. His great concern is for our sanctification. He alone is able to go down into our hearts and into the members of our bodies and give us grace against all the power of our sin. He gives, James says, verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. So whatever our remaining sin may be, this is what James is saying, whatever our remaining sins may be, whatever temptations, trials, difficulties we face in the Christian life, the promise is always true. And some have called this one of the most precious promises in the Bible. But he gives a greater grace that we might be victorious over all of our sin and our troubles in the Christian life. Some translate that phrase, but he gives more grace, or he gives abundant grace. And the idea is that no matter how great our need may be, he always gives sufficient grace for every need. The greater our need, the more generous and abundant is God's grace. The Holy Spirit who so jealously yearns over us for our sanctification and our progress in holiness is able to give us more and more abundant measures according to every need. God is always gracious, generous, effectual, and powerful in the grace that he gives to us in the Christian life. We can see This generosity of God and this abundant grace, if we turn to one passage in the Gospels in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. And John tells us in verse 14. John chapter 1 and verse 14. John says, And the word, referring to Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, when he came into the world, he was full of grace and full of truth. And then John tells us in verse 16, he says, For of his fullness... We have all received and grace upon grace. The fullness of Christ there in verse 16 refers to all the spiritual resources, all of the blessings and the benefits which come to us from Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of the deity to dwell in him. 
so that all the divine benefits, blessings, and resources, infinite, inexhaustible, boundless reservoir of grace was made to dwell in Jesus Christ. And John says here in verse 16 that of his fullness, out of all that infinite fullness of Christ, we have all received. Every believer has received from him out of that inexhaustible fullness. And what have we received? Grace upon grace He means one kind of grace for one kind of need and another kind of grace for another kind of need in the Christian life. Grace at one time of trial and then more grace at another time of trial. Always suitable grace. Always grace that is exactly what we need in every circumstance of life. Grace upon grace, he means grace without any end, without interruption. Grace without any limits or boundaries to it. Grace which is divine help from God in every need of life. John wrote this gospel when he was a very old man. Some say he was probably 95 maybe years old when he wrote this gospel. I believe he wrote the gospel after he wrote the book of Revelation. So John was a very old man, 95 years old. And what he is really telling us here in verse 16 of his own personal experience, that after so many years of following Jesus through trials and persecutions and so many troubles, this is what he knew of Christ, that out of his fullness, there is grace upon grace in every need. Verse 14, where he says, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That speaks of what John experienced of Jesus when he was on earth. And John was about 20 years old. That's what he saw in Christ when he was a young man, 20 years old. But now he's an old man, 95 years old. And in verse 16, he is telling us everything he experienced through all of his life. Of his fullness I have received. And grace upon grace in every time of trouble. And John is telling us this is the very same thing that every Christian can receive. For out of his fullness we have all received. And we can continue to receive from him in every time of need. So we are talking here about supernatural grace. That's what we're talking about. We are talking about a supernatural power that comes from Jesus Christ, from the throne of heaven down upon the souls of Christians by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit And the power of the Spirit gives grace upon grace to us. Supernatural, divine grace from above. Divine wisdom in every time of perplexity and confusion. Grace that gives us patience to remain steadfast in times of trouble and trial. Grace to remain faithful when pressure is upon us. 
grace that gives us strength in dangers and persecutions. Grace from heaven that helps us to keep our hearts in fellowship with God in every day, in the day-by-day life of a Christian. Grace that helps us to fight against falling asleep. To fight against falling asleep in the day-by-day mundane life that we are so often involved in as a Christian. Sometimes we think, well, we really need grace when things get bad. That's true, but we need grace when things are easy. And we need perhaps even just as much grace. Whatever grace we need, there is this infinite supply of grace for us in every circumstance that we face in this life. Back in James, we'll turn back to James chapter 4. James here, he writes to those who are under persecution. They have been driven out of their homelands. They were scattered abroad, he says. They they had encountered various or many different kinds of trials. They were under great pressure, intense difficulties. And yet James is telling them now in chapter 4 and verse 6 that God is still greater than all of your trials And he always has a greater and more abundant grace than everything that you face. And he is able to give you help and aid in every time of need. We hear of believers often, especially in our prayer meetings, we know of them in different lands, other parts of the world, they are under intense persecution. They face very great trials. Warfare. Great tumults. Intense persecution at times. We wonder, how can they endure? We wonder, how do they remain faithful under such trials? And where does their strength come from? James gives us the answer here. It comes from the greater grace that always comes from God. He gives the greater grace that we all need in such circumstances. We do not have it now, but they have it. In all their troubles, Listen for a moment to some of the expressions that the apostles use in the New Testament to speak of this grace. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, he speaks of this grace in which we stand. He means we live under this grace. It is the air we breathe and is that which continues our spiritual life. This grace 
in which we stand. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 5, and he says this, he says, Grace abounded all the more. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Peter opens his second letter, his first letter, he says, And may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure, in fullest measure. You know that Paul always opened his letters with these words like this. He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 20, when he gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He meant The grace of God, it will come to you through the word and by the spirit. And then the last verse of the entire Bible. The last verse. Can anyone tell me what the last verse of the entire Bible is? Maybe we should know what the last verse is. I was a little surprised to find it myself. Listen to what it says. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. That's the last verse of the Bible. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So all of these expressions of the apostles speak of the greater and the more abundant grace which James is speaking of here. And James wants his readers to understand that no matter how intense their trials may be and no matter how powerful remaining sin is still in them and however weak they might be in themselves, which they are, The Holy Spirit who indwells us has greater grace to help us in all these things. My grace is sufficient for you, said Jesus. My power is perfected in weakness. And that's what James is telling us here. So, this speaks, the beginning of the verse speaks of God's abundant provision for us. In the second place, this morning, we come to the condition of God's abundant provision. It's found in, the condition is found in one word, humility. Because the abundant grace that he speaks of there, who does he give it to? He only gives it to the humble. This is found in the rest of the verse. He says, therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When he says, therefore it says, he is speaking of the scriptures. The scriptures here speak. The same thing is back in the beginning of verse 5 where he said, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? James is telling us once again that the scripture speaks. And then he quotes a direct verse of scripture. The scripture speaks. It is the living and abiding word of God and God himself is the one who speaks present tense in the scriptures. James quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, which reads in our Bibles from the Hebrew translation, it reads, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the lowly or to the afflicted. And James is quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So his quote is, Different here, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter gives almost an identical 
or he does give an identical quotation in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, where he says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. With humility toward one another, clothe yourselves in it, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now this quotation here that James gives at the end of verse 6, this is not just a verse of scripture. This is a truth, a principle of God's dealings with men that is really found on every page of the Holy Scripture. It is the story of the universe. And it is how God deals with men throughout human history and how he will deal with them on the last day. God is opposed to the proud at all times, but he always gives grace to the humble. Pride was the first sin of the universe when the devil exalted himself against God. Pride was the first sin in this world when Adam and Eve fell for Satan's temptation. You will be like God. They desired to be like God. And pride has been passed down from our first parents to every one of us so that there is no one of us who can say that we do not have pride. Pride has infected the whole human race. One person may struggle with one particular sin. Another person may struggle with another kind of sin. We know that. But we all have this sin of pride. It is the root of all other sins. It is all about self. It is self-exaltation. It is self-importance. Self-superiority. Self-glorification. Overly inflated thoughts about oneself. Thinking that we are the center of all things and that everything must resolve, must revolve and agree with us and comply with our desires. The proud person will not hear what others say because he thinks he always knows best and he is always right. The proud person is always thinking about himself, talking about himself, talking about how good he is and everything that he does. Always a sensitive person to how others treat him. Very easily offended by what others do if they do not recognize him, if they do not respect him, if they do not appreciate him as he thinks that he ought to be respected and appreciated. He is quickly offended. A huff and a puff he goes into if people have not treated him as he thinks he deserves. A proud person always thinks about himself. A humble person doesn't want to think so much about himself, would rather think of others. That's the way Jesus was. He was the perfect, humble man and humbled himself and came down from heaven 
and became our servant and even humbled himself to the death of the cross. He is the perfect humble man. If you try and correct a proud man, you will find how resistant he is. If you point out something wrong in his life, he becomes quickly defensive and justifies himself. He is a man, the proud man is the one who rejects the word of God and becomes angry at it. As James has said back in chapter 1 and verse 19, he says, But let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. The proud man, he becomes quick to anger when he hears the reproofs of God's word. Pride is an insidious sin. And by that I mean that it is a sin that is most deceitful, subtle, and pervasive. We might call pride a stealth sin, meaning that it is doing its harm when we do not even know it is there. Pride often cloaks itself in humility. Because the proud man or woman is too proud to let others see how proud he is. So what he does, he puts on this outward cloak of humility. Have you ever heard someone boasting about how humble they are? If you think you're humble, you really are the very opposite. Humility does not think about itself. The humble person does not think about himself. We may say it this way, that the proud man is full of himself, but the humble man, he is empty of himself. The worst part of it all is that the proud man sees no need, no dependence on God. Because he thinks he is self-sufficient, all of his abilities... Everything that he has comes from himself, from himself. Worst of all, he sees himself in no need of a savior. He thinks that he is good enough and God will accept him as good enough in the end. God has sent his beloved son into the world and accomplished the most astonishing work of salvation to save sinners. But the proud man, he has no need of anything that God has done in Jesus Christ. Unbelievers are always the proud. Believers are the humble, but still with much remaining pride that we always must be aware of. The very beginning of humility, the very beginning of humility the very first drop of humility that enters our souls is when we see ourselves before the glory of God as sinners in need of salvation. And we are humbled and we are brought down low because we are so guilty and such sinners before him. That's what Isaiah saw when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and he himself, an unclean sinner, he said, woe is me, I am undone. That's what happened to Peter when Jesus filled the boat with the fish and the boat began to sink and 
Peter became aware of the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And Peter cried out, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. So conversion is the very beginning of any humility in our souls. Humility is the key that opens the narrow gate that begins the Christian life. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like children who see themselves as humble, dependent, and teachable, you shall not even enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 25, he said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou dost hide these things from the wise and the intelligent, the proud. He, He hides the gospel from them, but thou dost reveal them to babes, to the humble. Yes, Father, for thus it was well pleasing in thy sight. Pride is the sin of this world. This world has no approval of humility. Proud, the boastful, they are the ones who are exalted in this world. But there are no proud in heaven. And God makes a distinction between them here. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word opposed means that he resists the proud. It is a military term and what it means is that God puts on his armor And he arrays himself with his weapons and he stands against those who are proud in this world. Sooner or later, sooner or later, every proud man and woman will be humbled. Jesus said many times in his ministry, everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. And he who humbles himself shall be exalted. If you read the book of Proverbs, you will see what God says about the proud. I read one verse, Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. He is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Listen to Mary in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 and verse 51. He has done mighty things. Mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. We think of Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years he spent. We think of Herod in Acts chapter 12, who the people thought was A God, he took divine adoration to himself. God sent worms. And he ate, they ate him and he died right there. And so he was proud and he was humbled. And Thomas Manton, the Puritan, he says this. All other sins are against the law of God, but pride strikes at the nature of God. So we are not as, we are not a, Immune, any of us as believers, for sure. All we have to do is think of Peter. 
at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, You will all fall away because of me this night. And Peter was so proud, he contradicted Jesus and he began to boast. He said, even though all may fall away, I will never fall away. That's what he thought of himself. And we know what happened to Peter, how shameful it was. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stand, take heed, lest he fall. We'll turn to one passage about this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 20, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now the Corinthians had all kinds of problems among them. And the base root sin of all their problems was their pride. They had become proud. And Paul has to warn them in different passages in this letter that they should not become arrogant. Let no one become arrogant, he says, in different passages. And that's really what he's doing right here. They thought they were great. They were puffed up. And Paul has to tell them, look at yourselves. There's not many wise. You are not among the mighty or the noble. You are among the foolish. You are among the weak and the base and the despised of the world. You have nothing from yourselves that you can boast of. And down in verse 30, he says, it's by his doing that Christ has become everything to us. It is not by anything you have done or anything in you, but by his doing, he has become to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And then he says in verse 29, that no man should boast before God. This is the design, the end, the purpose of everything God does in our salvation that no one would ever boast before him. No one would ever claim anything coming from ourselves. And we would all be humbled. That's what salvation is all about. And that's God's design of salvation, that no man will ever boast before him. Go to the book of Revelation and you see the saints in heaven. And they are all bowed down in humility that they have been washed by the blood of Christ and therefore they are before the throne. There is no one there who boasts in heaven. We look at one other passage in chapter 4 here in verse 7. Chapter 4 in verse 7. Paul has to say to them, they're so proud. This is what he has to say to them. Verse 7, he says, For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? 
But if you did not, but if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He asked them three rhetorical questions here. The first one. For who regards you, he says, who regards you as superior? The answer is no one. No one regards you as superior. You think you are superior, but no one else thinks you are superior. That's what pride does to us. It puts a delusion into our minds so that we think things about ourselves that are not true and no one else thinks them. Who regards you as superior? No one. That's what Paul says to them. Then he says the second question, and what do you have that you did not receive from God? What do you possess that has not been so freely, graciously given to you by God? And the answer is nothing. Everything we have, we have received from him. Whatever gift, whatever ability we have, whatever talent, Whatever skill, whatever knowledge, it has not come from ourselves. It has all come down from heaven. John the Baptist said that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from above. So everything that we have is from him. And then the conclusion in that last question. But if you did receive it, why do you boast? If you did receive it from heaven... And it did not come from yourselves. Why do you boast about it? As if you had not received it. In other words, as if you had, as if it came from yourselves. How can you boast about something that has only been given to you from heaven? Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that he himself gives to all life, breath, and all things. If our next breath comes to us from heaven, from God, if our very next breath even comes to us from God, then how can we boast about anything? We go back to James chapter 4. So there is this great distinction that James makes here in verse 6 that God is opposed to the proud. He resists them. A warning to us that pride, let us not have pride take a root in our hearts. Let us be humble. Let us, because he gives grace abundantly, sufficiently in every time of need to the humble. And so the humble there at the end of verse 6, they are the ones who know their need of him. They come as empty vessels and they are filled by him. They seek his grace and when they seek his grace out of dependence upon him alone in all their needs, he gives to them grace upon grace. Spurgeon draws the analogy of springs of water. And he says that springs of water do not run on the top of mountains but springs of water run down in the valleys. And so we must take a humble and low place down in the valley so that we can drink there of the abundance of his grace. God says, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit 
And he says in Isaiah 62, 66, verse 2, he says, To this one I will look, I will look in my grace, to him who is humble and who trembles at my word. So we close our time this morning with a couple of very brief applications. And the first is, let us always be putting our pride to death. It is always with us. And it will be to the end. And there is really no escape from it until we are completely sanctified, glorified, and brought into God's presence in heaven. It will be with us to the end. It is the most offensive of all sins to the Lord. Let us ask him to show more of it to us and that we might, by the Holy Spirit, put this sin to death. If we look here down to verse 14 of chapter 4, James says this. He says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So how can we who have no control and do not even know what our life might be like tomorrow? And we are just a vapor that is here today and is gone tomorrow and never to be found again. How can a vapor boast in anything? Let us be humble. Let us put our sins of pride to death. And then the last thing we say is, let us always be going to the throne of grace. And that's what James would have us to do, as he says there in verse 8, draw near to God. And then down in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. There is a throne of grace in heaven where we may go to our great high priest and receive every grace that we need to fight against this pride that is still within us. What do we do when we find pride in us? We confess our sins quickly because he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we go to the throne of grace where we may receive this greater grace to overcome these sins, especially the sin of pride that is within us. He delights to give this grace he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, James warns us, God is opposed to the proud, but then he gives us that promise at the end. But he gives grace. He always gives that abundant grace to those who are humble. May the Lord help us to be among those humble. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for your great promises to us as your people that everything we need, you will give to us and you will never leave us and everything that we may face, every circumstance, trouble, trial, whatever may come upon us, there is always grace and strength that comes down to us from above. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for your kind work of grace in us. Lord, help us that we would be, we would learn from you, as you have said, come unto me and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart. Help us to learn 
from our Lord Jesus these things. Forgive us of all of our pride that still remains in us and is so stubborn and so great. Have mercy upon us, cleanse us, give us more and abundant grace from heaven to overcome our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, now. Hear us and help us to do your will, to love you and fear you and reverence you and be pleasing to you. We ask your blessing now upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.